Good morning, saints. It is a blessing to be with you this morning, and I thank you for the privilege of, of, in a sense, of coming into your house to bring God's word to you. I'm thankful for the men that I get to do ministry with. That was a, a, a sweet encouragement and challenge from Francis and great songs from Jonathan. As we uh, learn from God's word this morning, I think that you'll find the psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 63, is a particularly a good psalm to be focusing on. It is a psalm in which David found himself in the wilderness and not being able to go to where he normally worshipped, but it is also a psalm uh, for a time of weariness. And if we didn't feel weary before this week, I imagine that as you opened your papers this morning and got on websites, you definitely feel weary now. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 63. I'm going to read to you uh, it from the ESV. And some of that is uh, just because I've meditated most in it in this version. And so it's going to come out anyway. So might as well embrace that to read Psalm 63 in the ESV. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, for the psalm of David, for the testimony of a man uh, chosen by you, called by you, made king by you, a man in the wilderness. I pray, Father, that his words, inspired by your spirit, would speak to us in this morning, that would teach us how we are to bring glory to you while we are in the wilderness ourselves, in a sense, not being able to worship together. Thank you for your word, Lord. Um, only you can affect our hearts with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, I uh, imagine that there is a good deal of sadness in your heart this morning. As Francis spoke about earlier, there has been the murder of George Floyd this past week. There is the rioting that has spread across America. There is confusion over this virus, both understanding its danger and balancing what our responsibilities are. There is the absence of family, and for many of us, even more painful, the absence of saints. How has your heart been in these days of crisis? Have you been seeking the Lord? 
Have you been longing for him? Or have you simply been longing for this all to be over? Or have you been satisfying the the uneasiness in your soul, the, the unrest in your weary soul in other ways? Times of crisis bring fatigue to our souls. I've got to be honest, I've felt some, some fatigue, and I imagine that many of you have as well. Are you weary? King David wrote Psalm 63 in such a time. To begin with, I want to start with, with the subscript at the top of the psalm, where it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And this is just a, a, a quick reminder for us. The numbers and verses in the Psalms are not part of the original text. They, 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 they were added by translators a long time ago, so we could find our way when Scripture is being read. The title given in our ESV, My Soul Thirst for You, is, is, is added by the publisher. It's not inspired. But the phrase, a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, is part of the inspired text. So we want to make sure that we are reading it. If you're memorizing a psalm, you want to, to, mem- to memorize that or, or at least remember it when you read through it. And that subscript helps us pinpoint the psalm in David's life. Now, of course, we don't really know the, 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 the wilderness of, of Judea was not far from David's palace in the city of uh, 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 of of Jerusalem, it could have been written on any of, of of many occasions, but it's most likely it's most likely that the events occur when David's son Absalom revolted against him and seized the crown from his own father David. The crisis started in David in David's late fifties. It followed by a couple years of this 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 crisis, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. David's son, uh, 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 Amnon, had horribly mistreated his half-sister, Tamar. David was very angry, but he didn't really do much. Nearly 10 years later, David's son, son Absalom finishes his revenge over the way that mistreated that Tamar was mistreated. He fulfilled that revenge by taking the throne from his own father. And perhaps David is, 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 is probably now in his mid to late 60s. So that just gives us a little perspective as we read this Psalm 63. We can hear some of the history of what was going on in 2 Samuel 15. So I'm going to turn there and, and, and read a couple of verses to kind of give us a sense of what the setting may have been. In 2 Samuel 15, verses 13 and 14, a messenger came, came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And that's just as, as Absalom had planned. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. David knew it was time to get out of the city. 
In 2 Samuel 15, 23, it describes King David and others' departure from, from Jerusalem. And it says, all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the book, the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The next couple couple verses, I think, are going to, to, to be impacting uh, us as we read this psalm. And, 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 and Abiathar, the high priest, came up. And behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. They want to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the tent. It was set up in, in, in Jerusalem where David worshiped God. They want to bring the Ark with David. And they set down the ark of God until all the people had passed out of the city. And then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. David looked forward to the time where he would be able to worship before God's throne in, in, in the city of Jerusalem again. For a time though, David knew he wouldn't be able to worship there. Second Samuel 15 verse 30. It says that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up, weeping as they went. It's this emotionally exhausting, riveting scene of, of, of sadness as David leaves his throne with his most loyal followers. And the city weeps as he leaves. 2 Samuel 16, 14. It describes David after he, he, he has this, this 20 mile journey in the wilderness, maybe during that time that he wrote Psalm 63. And it describes him getting to the Jordan River. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Well, it's either, either there or maybe during that night in the desert where David perhaps wrote Psalm 63. This morning, Psalm 63 is a primer. It's instructions for us of how we are to respond when we are spiritually weary. This morning, we're going to see three ways we should respond when we are spiritually weary so that God is glorified in our longing. Three ways that we are to respond when we are spiritually weary so that God is glorified in our longing. The first response is direct your longing for God to God. And we're going to see that in the first couple of verses. The first response we are to have is direct our longing for God to God. Verse 1 begins, O God, you are my God. David begins his expression of longing for God by an expression of commitment to God. God is our God. Can you say today in your weariness, God is my God. God is my powerful God. God is my sovereign God. God is my compassionate God. God is my forgiving God. God is my merciful God. God is my covenant-keeping God. The God of Israel is my God. The Creator God is my God. See, the current experiences David was going through wouldn't change David's loyalty to God. Verse 1 continues. 
earnestly I seek you. The verb in, in Hebrew for earnestly seek is, a, is connected to the, to the Hebrew word for dawn, for the morning. David is seeking God like someone who is waiting for dawn, who is eagerly anticipating the glow of the first morning rays. And I imagine some of those uh, who have gone through these riots have been waiting for those first morning, for, for those first rays of morning. You can imagine this, this earnestly seeking like a dog that is waiting at its master's door, waiting for that moment when, when he hears, hears the doorknob jiggle and knows that his master is arriving. That is the kind of earnestly seeking we are to have for God. Oh God, you are my God. My soul earnestly seeks you. David doesn't let his, his longing spin him around. He knows whom he wants. Some of you have uh, missed out during this virus on your uh, favorite restaurant meals. But you've been unwilling to a, 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 accept a, 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 a substitute. You've been unwilling to go to something less than your favorite. Sure, you could have bought that grocery store sushi, but some of you are holding out for your favorite restaurant. You're unwilling to accept a substitute. And that's what David is doing here. Earnestly, I seek you. I'm waiting for the real thing, God. David is not like a man who is ready to confess his, his love for, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the woman he loves, for the apple of his eye, and he goes to knock on her door. And no one's home. So what does he do? He goes to the neighbor next door and confesses love there. That is not like David. But sometimes we are like that in our longings. We are spiritually empty. We know it's, it's God that we need, but instead we turn on the television or we grab some chocolate or we do some online shopping. Instead of earnestly seeking God, we stuff our face or we empty our wallets. We are uncomfortable waiting, so we give up seeking. This can't describe us, brothers and sisters. Verse 1 continues, my soul thirsts for you for the real deal. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, David's experience in, in, in the wilderness, even, even maybe that night, was the perfect metaphor for the oppressive spiritual dryness he felt. Late, later today, search for, 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 for images of the Judean wilderness, and you'll see the dry and weary land that David may have been speaking of. It's rocky crags, crags and desolate desert hills. Now, not so much the, 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 the sandy dunes of, of the Sahara, but nonetheless, a, a truly waterless, desolate, beautiful, but dry wilderness. Seeing these, these pictures, it's easy to imagine the thirst, the dry mouth, the parched and cracked lips, the, the tongue stuck to the roof of your mouth. 
the body becoming faint, the, 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 the physical body withering away, the dry eyes drooping, uh, uh, unable to hold themselves open in the heat. The way that someone feels in the wilderness, the way that someone is obsessed with water is the way that David feels about finding God, especially in his current crisis. He's obsessed with God and brothers and sisters, we must be obsessed with God too. He wants to experience the reality of the truth that he knows. It's not that David has forgotten the attributes of God and we'll see that he's still meditating on them. But he wants intimacy with God. He wants joy in God. He wants for his soul to be satisfied. He wants for his spiritual thirst to be quenched. He remembers how he used to sing. Don't you remember how we used to sing together? Verse 2 is exactly what David's doing there. He's remembering what worship used to have been like. Verse 2, it says, So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is remembering how in the past he satisfied this longing for the Lord by going to where God's uh, uh, temple was. Now, 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 not a physical temple. It hadn't been built yet, not even the tabernacle. But scripture tells us how, how David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into a tent in the city of, 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 of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was, was a box overlaid with, with, with gold that had uh, pictures of representations of gold, uh, uh, angels above it to represent the mercy seat of God, the, the, the very throne of God. In his early 40s, after, the, after capturing the, 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 the city of, 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 of Jerusalem, excuse me, it describes how David in 2 Samuel 6 verses 12 through 19 first brought this Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6 verses 12 to 19. It was after King David heard about the, the, the blessing uh, that the household of, of Obed-Edom was experiencing because the Ark of the Covenant had been resting there. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, verse 12, in the second half, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, to, to Jerusalem, with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Verse 14, 2 Samuel 6. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a, a linen ephod. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 17. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place. Now this wasn't in, in, in a, the tabernacle. It is a time where the ark of the Lord has a different resting place from 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 where the tabernacle was but it's it's place in the city of 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 jerusalem inside the tent that david had pitched for it and david offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the lord and when david had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings he blessed the people in the name of the lord of hosts now we don't really know that that Maybe the much older David didn't do the same amount of dancing he did when in his early 40s. 
But in the wilderness, David longed to be back before the ark, which represented the throne room of God. It says that this tent was where David had seen God's power and glory. And wasn't that he saw it with his visible eyes? We, we, we don't read anything in scripture of, uh, of God descending on it in a cloud. But it was a place where David went to reflect upon God and to commune upon commune with God. It was where he was reminded of God's covenant promises and where he remembered God's deliverance of, e of Israel from Egypt, of, of God's glory filling the tabernacle in the past, of God's holiness demanding sacrifices, of the joy of reconciliation with God. It was where God's power and glory resided. No, no doubt it was this tent that David went to when he went to worship after Bathsheba's child died, after his child, his illegitimate child with Bathsheba died. And this is where David went to worship. No doubt, dear brothers and sisters, you have been longing for where we used to worship. Our building is, is not the same as, as Israel's sanctuary. It's just a building. But it is where we join together as, as God's temple to see God and we, we are God's temple as his spirit resides in us. And where we see God in his word, where we remember Christ's sacrifice for us in the Lord's Supper, where we worship God's son. Scripture speaks of him as being God's temple, where we celebrate God's faithfulness in song. Brothers and sisters, our hearts are longing for where we've seen God's power and glory. And not just the place in his people. As each of you who have believed in Jesus Christ are a testimony to the power of Christ and, and a power, his power to save and transform. And it is in one another that we see God's power and glory working. As we see his people minister through his spirit to one another. And I know that you are hungering and thirsting to see God's power and glory again. David thirsted, David hungered, David longed, David yearned, and yet David remained loyal to his God. When you are in the wilderness, and whether that wilderness is, is the emotional onslaught of reading the news, of someone you know and love having this virus, whether it's the not being able to worship together. When you are in that wilderness, follow David's example. Confess that you are submitted to God. Tell him that he is you, your God. God, you are my God. I'm going to remain loyal to you. I'm going to wait for you. And then don't stop your longing for him. Don't settle for what won't satisfy. Don't stuff your face. Don't stuff your eyes. Don't stuff your heart. Don't stuff your house with more stuff. Don't offer yourself up to other gods. Tell God you thirst for him. You yearn for him. See, this satisfaction is inseparable from Christ. Perhaps this is one of the kinds of passages that Jesus thought of when in the temple he said, John 7, verses 37 to 38, On the last day of the feast, 
the great day, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that is true for you this morning, saints. We come to Jesus to drink, and out of our hearts, He gives His Spirit so that there flows rivers of living water. Our satisfaction is in Christ. Maybe, friends, there's some of you listening this morning who have never experienced this satisfaction. Jesus bids you to stop your lifetime of yearning. Lifetime of longing and lifetime of adultery, of trying to satisfy that thirst and lust and go to Him and drink. Believe in Him. That's what it means to come to Him and drink. It's to say, God, I need my eyes opened. Open my eyes now that I can see your Son. Let me see His beauty and radiance and for the first time in my life be satisfied. Oh, friends, if you have never been satisfied, go to Christ to be satisfied. Go to Christ for forgiveness. Go to Christ to have your thirst quenched. He will satisfy you. And brothers and sisters who have put your faith in Christ, this is the Christian walk. It is continually going back to Christ again and again and to direct our longing for Christ to Christ, to direct our longing for God to God. And God is, is merciful in these times and he even allows them times of, of weariness, times of wilderness wanderings so that we will have songs to write in the promised land. And whether that promised land comes comes tomorrow or it comes the next time we join together, or whether it comes when our eyes finally close, he will give us songs to write for an eternity because of his faithfulness to us in these times of, of weary wandering. We see David's response during these times. He directed his longing for God to God. Our second response we see in verses 3 through 8, persist in patterns of worship. Persist in patterns of worship. We could also say, stay faithful. But persist in patterns of worship. In verses 3 and 4, and then in 5 through 8, we see that, 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 that David does, uh, um, he takes the same kind of steps a couple times. It's not necessarily in the same order. But, 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 but these are some of, of, of the essential ingredients of, uh, of how we long for God in the wilderness, of what we are to do with our weariness. So we're going to see these, these, these three essential ingredients. We're going to see David's humble meditation. We're going to see his confident praise. And we see his future resolve. So let's look at this, this first kind of this, this pattern of worship that David has in, in, in verses 3 and 4. So that we persist in these patterns of worship. Verses 3 and 4. First in the beginning of verse 3, David begins with humble meditation. In the beginning of verse 3, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. David meditates on God's steadfast love, his faithful love, his loyal love, his covenant-making love, his covenant-keeping love, his loving kindness. 
He says, it's better than life. And maybe David wasn't experiencing the fullness of that while he's in the wilderness running from his son. But he knows it's better than life. Now, perhaps you think, it, 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 well, perhaps it was easy for David then to say it was better than, than life. He just lost his crown in a sense to his son. But I think David's not thinking on, on the worst of life. I think he's thinking then about the best of life. The best of all he's recently lost. See, God's love is better than your most pristine family memory. You know that, 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 that time where, where, where there was just perfect happiness and none of the kids were squabbling and there was just, just a feel that you just, you took a snapshot and, and, and it's your perfect family memory or, or maybe the most restful vacation moment or the most stunning sunset or the most stimulating concert or lecture when your mind seemed the most alive it's ever been or the most satisfying meal. See, God's steadfast love is better than all those things. Why? Because God's steadfast love is not fickle. The best we have in life is quickly forgotten. I'm sure in some of those things that I just mentioned, something didn't pop out to you because you've already forgotten it. But God's loyal affection is enduring. It's not even dependent upon our memory of it. Thousands of martyrs have testified that God's loving kindness is better than life. As it says in Revelations 12, those who did not love their lives even unto death, God's steadfast love is better. As David humbly meditates on God's steadfast love, we see next in the second half of verse three, his confident praise. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David's meditation leads to his exaltation. Even if David is in a spiritual wilderness, even if he's not experiencing God's love in the past, and I think it's probably true for many of us, many of these past weeks, you know, they haven't been our, our spiritual life highlights. Well, it maybe has been for some of us. Even if David wasn't experiencing the, the best of God, his contemplation led to praise and his remembrance led to rejoicing. See, such praise is not fueled only by feelings, but by reflecting on God's faithfulness. Have you praised him while in the wilderness before he satisfied your longing? Has that humble meditation led to confident praise? I know his steadfast love is better than life. I may not be feeling it right now, but I know it's better than life. So I will praise you, God. I praise you now. Is praise any less praise when it precedes feeling? No, praise is an action. It's us lifting our lips and our hearts and our hands to God. And that is what David does in verse four, he has future resolve. Humble meditation leads to confident praise and he knows he's going to keep praising God. He has resolved to praise God. Future resolve in verse four. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. 
David's commitment to praise has no qualifications to it. It's not, if you do this, God, then I'll do that. His praise is not going to stop. Even while longing in the wilderness, he will praise God as long as he lives. He says, because of God's steadfast love, he will bless God. That means, if possible, he's going to enrich God's reputation with praise. Now, in a sense, you can't do that, but he's going to heap praise upon God. He's going to add to others' estimation of God. Those who are there with him are going to hear him bless God. As long as he lives, regardless of circumstances, even when he's on the run from his own son, even as he suffers the consequences, really, of his own failed leadership. David will not pray in any other name. He won't lift up his hands, and whether he's, he, he's lifting up his hands in, 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 in submission to God, in supplication of God, in praise of God, he's not going to lift up his hands to any other gods. He says, in your name, in the name of Yahweh, I will lift up my hands. Yahweh is his God, regardless how long he's in the wilderness. He's not going to to take his worship to other gods when he feels like God hasn't responded the way he's requested. He's not going to start sniffing around other altars. Now, that same pattern of worship, those essential ingredients we see again in verses 5 through 8. This time, he begins with the confident praise. He begins with the confident praise, but it, but it still has this, 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 this forward focus. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now, we're going to hear when in just a minute, and it's when he meditates. David is confident that his soul will not always be in the wilderness. Saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, your soul will not always be in the wilderness. Satisfaction is coming. It is a soul satisfaction that that, that David parallels with the physical satisfaction of the best meal. He doesn't apologize about any dietary restrictions here. He just goes for fat and rich food. He imagines the satisfaction of the best burger he's ever had. And I've got one in mind. It was a big burger. It had on two six-ounce patties. It had on it a pile of brisket and barbecue sauce and bacon and smoked gouda. And it was ridiculously over the top. David was salivating as he thought of fat and rich food. He was, in a sense, in a spiritual restaurant. He had already put in his order, and he knew the fat and rich food was coming to his table. Brothers and sisters, we can have confident praise that our soul will be satisfied and that our mouth will praise God with joyful lips. And this praise is is the enthusiastic and and, and natural response when when we hear something good. It, It is the eruption of our hearts when something good happens. It is what we think after that first bite of our favorite food as I sink my teeth into that favorite burger of mine. 
Or it's the thrill of a child who opens their eyes on a birthday morning. That's this praise. It's this enthusiastic and natural response that I couldn't stop if I wanted to. The psalm looks forward to this praise with joyful lips, this lips of a ringing cry, lips of joyful singing. That may not be him in the wilderness. That may not be him in that dry and weary land where his lips are parched, but he knows it is coming. He has confident praise. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when he has humble meditation. That's what he does in verses six and seven. There is humble meditation. When I remember you upon my bed, meditate on you in the watches of the night. What has been keeping you up at night? David uses these these sleepless nights and maybe that first night in the wilderness was sleepless. David uses a sleepless night to remember and to recall God, to meditate on God. The word for meditate means to, 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 to mumble or to mutter under your, your, your breath. And it's kind of what you do when you're trying to, to, to build something from instructions from Ikea. Wait, that's not a good example because Ikea doesn't have any words. But when you're trying to read instructions and all of a sudden you're reading and you have to slow down and you audibly voice them because it takes concentration. That is this meditation. And that's what David's doing at, not, uh, at night. He's meditating at night. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. I remember you upon my bed. David is focusing on God. He's, he's reminding himself of the truth of God. There's nothing that says that this comes easy to him. Reading those, those, those instructions can be complex. He's, he's forcing himself to think here. It's not bad, but it does take discipline. And he gives a reason in the verse 7 for why he's, he's remembering and why he's meditating. For you have been my help. The gods of the nations, Moloch hadn't been his help. Baal hadn't been his help. Yahweh had been his help. And so this is where he puts his attention. David has known God's safety and, and protection. In verse 7, he says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David has known God's safety. He has rested like a baby bird beneath his mother's wing. He, because of God's past support, because of God's present grace, David can still sing for joy, says at the end of verse 7, In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. See, his humble meditation, again, we see the cycle back to this confidence of praise. Yes, he's in the wilderness, and he is weary, and he is sad, and he spent that morning weeping. And he knows the Ark of the Covenant is in the city. He's away from it. He is, he, he's away from his normal place of worship. So he meditates, and he remembers and he rejoices in God who has been his help. And then we see his future resolve. And, and, and again, this, this, this pattern of worship is, is similar to that first pattern. There's confident praise in verse 5. There's humble meditation in verse 6. And, and there's this future resolve in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. 
your right hand upholds me. Clings, it means to, 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 to stick. He says, God, I'm glued to you. I am loyal to you, God. I am committed to you. I will not go elsewhere, God. In Genesis 2.24, that, that word cling is used of a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife, clinging to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Ruth 1 verse 14, it describes how, how, how Orpah kissed her, her mother-in-law Naomi and left, but Ruth clung to Naomi. She wouldn't leave. Even when Naomi's like, you need to, to, to go back to your people. Ruth's like, no, I'm clinging to you. And this word to you, my soul clings to you. It's literally my soul clings after you. It's following and sticking to God. It's like a child that is afraid of losing its parents in a crowd. Or the caution you might show following a tourist guide in a busy, huge overseas city you've never been in. You, you, you cling after them. You keep sight of them. That's what David's future resolve is. I will cling to you, God. Yes, I am weary. I am sad, but I am clinging to you. He says, your right hand upholds me. The end of verse eight. The right hand signifies God's power. David is confident that God will keep him from failing. That God's right hand will uphold us. And brothers and sisters, if you aim to please Christ, God's right hand will uphold you in a beautiful and a, even a mysterious way. That's part of the gift of Jesus Christ sending his spirit to us. The spirit is how Christ upholds us with his mighty right hand. We have the ability to please him when we are weary. And when our, our lips are parched and we think that we have no more song in us, cling to him and his right hand upholds us. And yet we see what we are to do, to meditate on him in the watches of the night. Is this your pattern of worship in, in the wilderness? Is this pattern your pattern? Are you following along with these, these essential ingredients? Have you been humbly meditating? It takes work. I know it does. There are so many things easier to think about. That was true before the internet. So many things easier to think about than humbly meditating. Are you fueling the fires of your heart with the evidence of God's steadfast love? Have you been bringing the offering of your sleepless nights to him? Or have you been offering your sleepless nights to another altar? Have you been confident of soul-satisfying praise? Are you certain, because you can be saints, that your lips will praise him again? That God will preserve you through these months, and if they are months or years, or you're going to face, many of us, much more wearying things than these. Are you certain that your lips will praise him again? That your soul will be satisfied? That dawn will follow your darkness? Are you resolved to respond 
with commitment to your loyal God, to your God who you say, my God, I cling to you. In your current struggle is your commitment to bless him as long as you live. God, I will not say a bad word about you. In front of my children, I am only going to add to the estimation of you. Are you committed to cling to him, even if the results are not what you would like? Brothers and sisters, don't waver in the wilderness. Don't despair in the darkness. Cling to him and he will uphold you with his universe-sustaining, universe-creating, mighty right hand. And this is the incredible comfort we have, having Christ who is over all. We see what our responses need to be so that we glorify God in our longings. We need to direct our longing to God. We need to persist in patterns of worship. But we also need to wait in confidence for God's resolution. Wait in confidence for God's, re- for God's resolution. We, we see that in verses 9 to 11. Verses 9 to 11, David responds to the situation which had dragged him away from the sanctuary where had propelled, which had propelled him into the wilderness. In verses 9 and 10, it says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. See, David's confidence is that he, as God's anointed king, would be victorious. His, his, his enemies would go down to the depths of the earth and it referred there to, to death, into the afterlife. They'd be given over to the power of the sword that, 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 that his enemies would be the ones who would be slaughtered, that they'd be a portion for jackals, that they would have the shame of their bodies not being buried in a sense to, that their bodies would be left in the street. David had been pursued into the wilderness, but it was not his body that would be eaten by the wilderness scavengers. There would be a complete turnaround. We see that in verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. The king shall rejoice in God. David predicts a time when he, the king, shall rejoice in God. And perhaps he's envisioning worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant again. He's thinking now of the future rejoicing. But his future rejoicing that he's currently rejoicing in, he knows is sometimes going to be rejoicing in God's past faithfulness. So he rejoices now in what God will do. He knows that he will rejoice in God. The end of verse 11 He says, all who swear by him shall exalt. And I don't think this is swearing by the king. I think it's swearing by God, by by the true God, Yahweh. That is true of all of us who one day wait for God's action, whether in this life or the one to come. All who swear by him will rejoice. We will exalt, we'll boast by God. And to swear by him uh, is is the idea of, of taking our oaths with God as witness. It's those who take the relationship with God seriously, who deal with a creator, with a holy God, with a sovereign God, 
with a sustaining God. And, 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 and in that Old Testament context, swore taking God as the witness. It's those who take God seriously. Those who swear by him will exalt. They will boast. They will have reason to boast in their allegiance to God, that God is their God, because the Lord is going to demonstrate that he is for his people. But on the other hand, David says, the mouth of liars will be stopped. Whether those who have been defaming God or whether those who have been insulting God's king. What would silence the liars of this world now? But the universal reign of Christ, when Christ reigns on earth, no one will lie about him, whether mistakenly or intentionally. No one would be so bold as to utter falsehoods about our Savior, because his reign will be seen by all. We will exalt in our King. Every philosophy against Christ will be silenced. And David waits in confidence that his crisis as king, he knows it's going to be resolved. He knows that resolution is coming. And we must wait, saints, for the victory of our king. Christ, victory is coming. What we face is fleeting. Persecution around the world is temporary. The sadness we feel, the wait, it is short term. The injustice is infuriating. It is painful, but it is passing. King's, King Jesus' enemies will not stand. Those who bowed their knees to him will exalt at his arrival. Our shout of rejoicing is going to erupt at the return of King Jesus. We must wait in confidence for the resolution that God is bringing when his king returns to his city and he reigns over this earth. The question is not whether the world is wrong. We know that this world is horribly wrong. But whether you are right with the one who is going to right this world's wrong. Are you right with the one who will put down the smack? with the one who will right this world's wrongs, all of the injustice and eradicate the sickness and will do away with death. Are you right with that one? Have you gone to him? Is your soul thirsty, so thirsty that you say, I can have no other but Christ. He is forgiving. Be reconciled to that king before that king reconciles all things. Bow now before you bow with an unwilling knee. Jesus Christ is willing for you to be reconciled to him. He had compassion on the crowds. He had compassion even on the riotous crowds. He has compassion on all those who would come to him. As those who are sheep without a shepherd, I am impacted. Uh, uh, and just thinking, in Jesus' 12 disciples, there was Simon the Zealot, by all indications, one who had worked to overthrow the government. But there was also one who had collected taxes for the government, who had betrayed his own people. 
Both were followers of Jesus, and that's what Jesus does. Unites people under one king. Are you united under that king? God has a great resolution plan. Christ is returning, and in this weary wilderness, while we are waiting for, 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 for Christ to bring the eternal vaccine against all sicknesses, and we are waiting for the king to do away with all injustice, how do we wait in this weary wilderness? Brothers and sisters, when you turn on the nightly news, when you grab a copy of the LA Times, despair is around the corner. There is so much sadness. There used to be days we forget what the wilderness of this world is like, but it is present to us. For many of us, we kind of feel like David kicked out of our comfortable palace and the wilderness is closer than it has been and we are parched we haven't had even the refreshment of worshiping together what are we to do we are to direct our longings for god to god we are to long for him to resist satisfying those longings with lust and we are to look for him we are to persist in these patterns of worship. We are to meditate on him, to be confident that we will be satisfied by him. And we are to remain committed to him, clinging to him. And we are to wait in confidence for the resolution that King Jesus will bring. This is how we worship in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, reminded us a little of how messed up the world is. And you've been really doing that in many ways these, these last months. And Father, we don't really predict it getting better. There will be new sadnesses uh, ahead of us, whether in individual homes, whether as a nation. We are eager for your son to be glorified. And we ask that your son would be glorified in our homes, whether as singles, as couples, whether as those with kids. We ask, Father, that you would be glorified before a watching world by the way we worship in the wilderness. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in our interactions with one another, that we would be able to tell about the one who will satisfy the longings of our heart. Father, we pray that you would turn people's hearts to you in the midst of so much of the sadness of sin being exposed. When the rebellion of so many hearts is exposed, and whether that is the way that we take lives or the way that we loot or that we sit smugly in homes, gratifying our flesh in many ways. Father, we want your son to be glorified in our hearts. We ask, Father, that you would be our all and that our hearts would yearn for King Jesus's return and that until then, we would have such confidence that you are our God, and that we would long for you 
and that we would meditate on your loving kindness and that we'd be confident that our soul will be satisfied and that we will cling to you and trust for your upright, that your right hand will uphold us. You are so good to us, Lord. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.